0: Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
1: Hey, guys and gals. Welcome to the 30th anniversary edition of our podcast for Barton Fink. That's right. This classic Coen Brothers movie premiered in the U.S. all the way back on August 21st, 1991. It's a long time ago. Uh, And our
0: podcast was a long time ago. We're pretty big Coen Brothers fans here on Bald Move. We've covered a ton of their movies. No Country for Old Men, Big Lebowski. Burn After Reading, Blood Simple, not to mention all of the Fargo episodes of the TV show, which, of course, is heavily
1: influenced and inspired by their work. Yeah, and, and Barton Fink is a great movie and it enjoys a 90% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes with a matching 89% audience score. So if you haven't seen it, now's a great time to check it out. And if you have seen it, well, you know what you're in for. It's a weird little movie with a weird and charming cast that touches on a lot of meta themes about writing, the Hollywood system. As well as heavy topics like religion and fascism. I think John Goodman's the devil, right? I, I think so. And it's just okay. a typical Hollywood typecasting, you know. Anyway, <laughs> as you mentioned, this is an old ass movie review. We did this podcast uh, way back as a commission. Way, 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 way back in October 2014. So please enjoy this podcast re-release for the 30th anniversary of the Barton Fink movie. And uh, hope to see you back for a fresh Bald move prestige podcast real soon. Hey everybody. Welcome to another commission podcast. This time we're going to be talking about the 1991 Coen brothers film Barton Fink graciously commissioned by Anthony Bassich. I hope I'm pronouncing your name. I actually looked it up and got a little, uh, cause I was going to say Bassich, hmm and, and maybe if you're a Frenchman, that's the correct pronunciation, but I'm going to Bassich. uh, so this is an interesting film and I feel like there's a lot of the, the, to say about it. It's one of the Coen brothers films where it's a lo- It's very easy to take on multiple levels. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of symbolism, a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of funny stuff. Traditionally, my I like the Coen brothers when they're just really serious. Okay. You know, when they're talking about no country for old men we've got Fargo, not that there's no moments of levity in there, but you can easily pin that as a drama or like them when they're really funny, uh, like raising Arizona. I think they're less successful for me because, you know, if you've listened to a lot of our podcasts, one of my big bugaboos is tonal shifts, tonal inconsistencies. And Barton Fink comes very close to getting in that Valley with me because it starts off as a very broad comedy. And it increasingly turns dark and then takes a supernatural twist at the end. Mm-hmm. And it left me really, especially the ending. I got to say, I really hated how the movie ended.
0: You hated how it ended, huh?
1: Yeah. And it's nothing about how ambiguous it was or that there's a lot of open questions. I just, I don't know. Um, that saying, I liked the film. It was very entertaining. I'm glad I saw it. And I have a lot to say about it. What did you think about the film?
0: I thought it was one of the more interesting Cohen works that I've seen. I haven't seen all of their stuff. Sure. And I thought I had seen this, but I was actually thinking of another John Turturro playwright movie called Cradle <laughs> Rock, which was a very serious take on uh, Broadway and playwrights. And It's not a Billy Idol rock opera? No, it's really? not. <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I I went into this movie expecting something very different, and I realized, oh, this is not the movie I'm thinking of, uh, you know, 10 minutes into the thing. Um, I, I enjoyed it a lot. It felt more serious than some of their other stuff, like, you know, Big Lebowski is <laughs> basically Another. my favorite Coen Brothers movie of all right. time. One of my favorite movies, period, of all time. Right. Uh, that's not nearly as serious and doesn't have the the metaphor and all the kind of thematic stuff running through it that this does. And you kind of need to know a little bit about the history of this film to understand,
1: uh, to to understand the film fully. I feel. I thought this, now that you mentioned uh, Big Lebowski, there is a fairly fairly big reference to Barton Fink in the Big, or a, a wink to Barton Fink in Big Lebowski, because Walter. Who's played by John Goodman? Uh, they're talking about the, the nihilists, yeah, and he's saying, you know, dude, say what you want about the tenets of national socialism, you gotta admit that it's at least a, a, a workable life. Ethos, a lot, it's an yeah, yeah. ethos, right? Uh-huh. And then in this film, one of the interpretations of uh, John Goodman's character, who's Charlie Meadows, is that he's a metaphor for the rise of national socialism uh-huh. and the ineffectual liberal elite response to that rise. Sure, sure. Which and I'm I, sure we'll talk about more going into it. Yeah, probably
0: probably so. I don't know much about the history of that whole uh, era, but I know that Roger Ebert mentioned it in his review. Mm. Um, there are a couple of overt references to Hitler for for one. Sure. Um, yeah, we'll get there. But so I, I wasn't expecting this movie. Uh, once I watched it, I found it was one of my favorite Coen Brothers works. I mean, it's it's maybe on par with Fargo, in my opinion. Wow,
1: yeah, and I really like Fargo. Uh, it's got a lot more going on than Fargo, but I don't know. It's, well, it's not nearly. Uh, it's not nearly on that level for me. I mm-hmm. do like. Um. So so, just to start out, I did. I was really into it about what it had to say about creative types mm-hmm. because I kind of fancy myself as a creative type, and some of the questions that Barton was struggling with you know, like, what is real success? What does it mean to be successful? What does it mean to be successful in the eyes of the creator? What does it mean to be successful in the eyes of the audience? What does it mean to mm-hmm. sell out? Yeah, particularly in the eyes of Hollywood is one of the things that they address here. I mean, I, 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 I and, and this is like a real thing you hear mostly, I think, with rock stars where they become famous for a particular song that they themselves cannot stand. Maybe they made it you know, as a lark, or they saw it as a less serious thing, or it something they're fucking around with, and then suddenly, like, uh, uh, is it Radiohead with "Creep"? Like they refuse. Oh, I don't know to play Maybe. that song anymore because they hate it so much and it's so so comparatively shallow and and uninteresting to them. Yeah, but that's like you know one of everybody's favorite songs of theirs. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think about that? Like, we've got a guy. Who created something that everyone's hailing as a masterpiece, and he says it's meh.
0: Uh, You're talking about his play? Yeah. The the original one that we see in the opening. New York Everyman. I don't know that... I mean, does he see that as meh? It's what he sees. I mean, that's he what, sees it as his finest work to date, certainly. But I think it was his he? only
1: work to date as well. I think that's the first one that he actually got critical success for. And he was just saying that it's, you know, it's I'm getting I'm reading these accolades, but they don't mean anything. And it's not. I, I feel like when he's having dinner with that, that couple that he was just loathing himself because he knew that he was capable of better, that this was only scratching the surface of what he wanted to do for the everyman. Sure, sure. There's a lot mixed up in that.
0: I, I don't know. I, I didn't really get that impression from him that he thought that he necessarily thought himself a fraud. I, I feel like he thought himself better mm. than than the work he was being tasked with. This shitty wrestling movie. Well, B movie. that. Yeah. Once you get there. So like those two, I, I don't know that those two ideas
1: are, are not in
0: conflict with each
1: other. What do you think? What is the artist problem with selling out? Because the pitch seems to make a lot of sense. You do something that you might think is beneath or it's a little bit too pop culture for you, whatever, for a set amount of time. You make a lot of money and then you have you have fuck you money. You have creative freedom to do whatever the hell you want for the rest of your life. You've also tarnished your reputation.
0: Have you if it's popular? I think you have. Uh, People are expecting a certain thing from you like this might even be able to be evident in the career of the Coen brothers where people kind of, I guess, expect a certain thing from the Coen brothers. And then when they go make a serious drama,
1: it feels very weird. It doesn't feel very coen right? I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to struggle to think of an example of an actor who, or let's, let's stick to acting and writing or even music so in pop culture, mm-hmm. someone that makes something that has broad comedic or whatever appeal And then they take a dramatic turn. And as long as it's assuming that the dramatic turn is quality or they do something more important that it fails. Like Tom Hanks is a perfect example. Tom Hanks is a goofball that was in what bosom buddies. He was in. What was that bachelor?
0: He's in money pit and big and all these all that those crazy stuff, but not
1: really. You know, deep. Movies. But then, you know, you don't think of him. I mean, he's still a very funny guy, mm-hmm. but he's got, you know, he's kind of this generation's Jimmy Stewart. You think of the Beatles who made like teenage pop music and then went on to make some of the greatest popular music of all time, you think? Mm-hmm. I, I, just, I just don't know that I buy that being popular is a handicap for then later doing good stuff because it's that has and I think that's one of the other questions in Barton Fink is He this this Fink character has a lot of baggage and almost loathing of the people that he's trying to uphold. Sure. Like if you're saying that pop culture is stupid and the audience is too stupid to appreciate stuff. And if you're you're going to be sullied by being popular, that's a fairly hateful thing to think about your audience. Right. Well, that's not his audience as
0: he sees it. Right, the the audience he's now writing for this wrestling B movie is not his audience. He doesn't give a fuck about these people. But these—they're the everyman. They're the, exactly the type of people to go
1: see a wrestling film.
0: Sure, and I think that's the disconnect in Barton Fink's philosophy uh, throughout this movie is that he thinks he is the everyman when in fact he is not the everyman. He is masquerading as the everyman. Mm. He's championing the everyman while being. You know, the guy who writes for the pictures now, mm. you know, and that's evident, at especially like when you go look at the USO dance. Sure. That he's at. I mean, he claims like, I am the creator. I create with my mind. Right. And he's saying that he's better than all these men. Right. He is much better than all these men. And that is the disconnect. Like when uh, Charlie is trying to say. Hey, I got, I got all these stories. Like, Barton Fink is, is brick walled here. He's got no creative insight. He has no ideas. He's dried up. And here comes Charlie, a guy with an infinite amount of stories. And what does Charlie or what does Barton do? He shuts him down when he's about to tell those stories and says, This has to be great. This has to be incredible. I am a creator and I need to make something amazing. He doesn't want to hear the everyman story.
1: Right. Like, right right there into his hotel room walks a larger life character that you could pretty much yeah. just start cop, you know, cobbing dialogue down. He's even got wrestling experience. Yeah. I mean, this is a man who like for two weeks, he's assigned to, to write this wrestling flick and for two weeks, he sits in a hotel room staring at a typewriter. He's never seen a wrestling picture before. He doesn't know yeah. the basic wrestling terminology uh-huh. like it seems like job one would be go fucking watch some wrestlers. Yeah. then maybe watch some wrestling film read up on it a little bit i mm-hmm. but but there's also some commentary about the hollywood establishment because you've got this you know again larger than life guy he's this studio executive what is his name lip lipinski or lip lipowitz lipnick Lipnicks? i think uh he's sitting there behind his desk and he is to barton fink what barton fink is to charlie uh, he's brought this guy out to give it the Barton Fink touch. The Barton Fink touch is an intellectually stimulating deconstruction of the everyman's heroic existence. Sure, and he wants him to write a very base wrestling film. Mm-hmm. And the whole time he's talking about how important it is to be an artist, and you know you got to respect the person's art and his his artistic output. And then at the end, when Barton Fink does what he actually thinks. You know, is his greatest achievement. The guy shits all over and says, We just wanted a dumb wrestling picture. If I wanted to, I got 10 Barton Finks. It's kind of schizophrenic, his his attitude towards this.
0: Definitely. I mean, what he views as successful, like we were talking about earlier, is very different from what Barton Fink
1: views as successful. Hmm. So is it possible that Barton Fink actually made a shitty script? Uh, it, that is an interesting idea because
0: I, I kind of, I, I watched this a second time and I kind of built up an idea in my head of what I think might actually be going on here. Um, I think Barton Fink might actually be the lunatic, um, the lunatic killer that Mets the Mets actually is, you know, portrayed as, uh, who's, okay. who's Charlie. Um, That's his his apparent real name, because so I was looking at this at the beginning of the movie. uh, Barton Fink has success. He writes a play that is very good. Everyone loves it. Uh, He's standing there behind the scenes with this magazine rolled up in his hand, and he looks very intense and almost crazed Mm -hmm. a little bit. Very, very intense. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking his best work comes out of those moments of intensity and in this film later on when he writes his second what he considers his greatest work uh it's after he has killed or after someone has killed uh audrey his lover yep uh it's after he has had kind of a psychotic break with that mm. um i'm i'm wondering and especially when you look at this this package that he's given by charlie Uh, Charlie later on in the hallway when it's on fire says, that's not my package. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's not, that's not the stuff that belongs to me, which in my mind says that might be the stuff that belongs to Barton. And if Barton killed, he's talking about his family and he's trying to get in touch with his family later Mm -hmm. on after Charlie leaves and says, I visited them. Mm -hmm. He can't do it. There there's no answer. Sure. So if Charlie if uh, Barton was to kill his family before he wrote that exceptional play uh, at the beginning and then he comes to Hollywood, kills Audrey and writes his next exceptional play, you could view him as a serial killer who is fueled by the killing of these people to write these great screenplays and, and
1: plays. The one problem I have that is Barton is having a loud conversation with one of his uncles or aunts. Like when he's in the middle of his writing mania, he's on the phone and he's screaming. Like, is he just screaming uh-huh. to no one? Are you suggesting that he I mean, I feel like uh-huh. that they make it pretty clear that he's talking to his family back in New York.
0: He's talking to someone I yeah, maybe it's his family in New York. There's no indication of that. The only time that we actually get an idea of who he's trying to call is when they don't answer.
1: Are you implying that parts of this movie take place in a dream world? Are you sure. in, I think you could even say that this entire movie takes place in Charlie's head.
0: Oh, I hate that. Uh, or See, the, the, the hotel itself is his mind. I mean, the the this line "life of the mind." Yeah. Like, I'll show you what it's like to yeah. live
1: the life of the mind uh, at the end. That's the this is what happens when you fuck a man in the ass <laughs> moment of this film.
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah, John Goodman, great at that. Uh, I I feel like there's a lot more to it than just the straight up. A uh, writer goes to Hollywood, has a writer's block, and
1: gets into some trouble. See, that's, I guess, another problem I have with the film is that if you're going to do that, I feel like you need to say th- there needs to be a more clear indicator that this is actually taking place in his mind. Or if you're saying mm-hmm. part of is any of the part of is any of the film real? Because if it's part of his film is real and part of its dream, part of it's a dream, that I feel like there's got to be some kind of clear Insert points between where you know here's reala- reality, here's a dream world. Well,
0: there might actually be. I'm wondering if it's not when he's in the bathroom and passes out after he sees Audrey
1: killed mm-hmm. or dead, because you know? that's when, like, honestly, nothing. It's kind of like Fargo, and it's it's funny because I wish I'd seen his movie before I seen Fargo, because I feel like I'd been repping the. Uh, it wasn't Lester. It was uh, uh, t- Jesus. Who was the Billy Bob Thornton? Character Malvo, Malvo. Malvo. I would have repping the Lorne is the devil thing a lot harder um because he was doing a lot of these same kind of John Goodman manifestations. I I I talked about the way he was disrupting power fields and doing all this stuff. But yeah, yeah. the only point in this film where it just takes a a pure supernatural bend is when John, when when Charlie comes back with the investigators working over the fire bursting out in the hallway Mm -hmm. and all that stuff is going on. so clearly, that's not real. Yeah, that is that is either
0: allegory or it is uh, a dream, perhaps. But everything uh, else sure. in the
1: film is so grounded in in reality. Like, and I I was honestly shocked when things started bursting out into flames. Uh, I was when the yeah, smoke yeah, was too. rolling out of the elevator. I thought, okay, well, maybe something's happening or the elevators malfunction because I was looking uh when I was looking through this a second time, I noticed like the, the sometimes the equipment looked very ran down and like the fan was in some scenes running in the elevator, running slow. I was thinking maybe there's like electrical fire or something. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, it's really easy to say, okay, well it's hot and associate the heat with the Charlie character. But then when he's walking down the halls and literally things are just bursting into flames. Yeah. Um, one of the deconstructions in the movie that I saw on the internet said noted that uh, the number six is repeated three times in the elevator yeah uh, like Barton says six and then a the guy says floor six and then when he gets to the top he says floor six clearly there's, there's a lot of hell motif stuff going on here but I, I just don't know what to do with that
0: yeah, that's kind of why I said you need you to know the history of how this film got written and made. And for some reason, bit. like, there's because a... S- it's it's mixed up in Miller's Crossing, when... when ah, shit, dude. <laughs> which I haven't seen. But I, I wish I had. I feel I need that for the proper context, but... When the Coen Brothers were writing *Miller's Crossing*, they got stuck. They got to a point where they had sure. writer's block. Had, right, yep. they couldn't figure out the ending to this movie, and they came up with this idea for Barton Fink, right? Uh, which they then made later on.
1: Again, for me, as like you know, tonal shifts being my big bugaboo, I feel like I'm a lot. It's a lot easier for me to go along with the Unstoppable because that's something Eric had and his. You know, the Coen brothers love of this unstoppable, evil, supernatural force character. Yeah, I have a I have a lot easier time rolling with them when they're like Lauren Malvo and they're a lot more firmly situated in the real world. Mm -hmm. You know, like at no time did did literal flames burst out of his mouth or do anything crazy like that or, you know, horns grow out of his head. Or if you're going to do stuff like that, I like it better in *Raising Arizona*, where you've got this evil biker guy who's like literally riding his bike up ladders and through windows, and you know he's like this goblin thing, oh, like *Evil Dead* style, right? Yeah, like <laughs> like it's when it's in a, a a comedy or a farce. For some reason, my suspension disbelief is a lot more powerful in those type of fantastical situations.
0: Yeah, it's weird because I I realize that when you take it at face value and this whole movie is basically about writer's block Mm -hmm. um, and about the creative dilemma uh, as it is, then I kind of open up to a lot of different interpretations, right? If if I had none of that information and I wasn't sure what this film was about, maybe I would go a little more literal at Mm -hmm. the beginning of this film and then say, okay, well that hallway of fire is clearly not real. And that must mean something, super important and i think it does but it's in the context of this larger metaphor uh-huh. you know so so where do you draw the line this whole film is a metaphor where where do you say
1: this is reality and this isn't well like i personally think of things like can they really happen like for example there's one way okay. to look at this as a film that's about sexual repression okay okay And particularly because there's some homoerotic, explicitly homoerotic scenes, yeah, where like you know, uh, um, John Goodman's character Charlie is demonstrating to Barton wrestling techniques, yeah, and he like gets on the floor on his hands and knees and is like (laughs) Uh smiling, looking over his shoulder, like "Come on, it's all right," yeah, yeah, and and I even I read an uh, interview the Coen Brothers where they explicitly said they consider that a love scene Mm -hmm. or a sex scene, yeah, um. Yeah. So that can happen. And, and during these peaks where like Barton is complaining about the lovemaking going on in the, the other side of the building, the wall, and, and he's sexually fr- coming home and he's sexually frustrated by the fact that this, uh, William Faulkner looking guy. And I think, cause that's the other thing. The, the creative types that they mentioned are all based on real people. In fact, mm-hmm. uh, Wallace Beery was a real film star. And coincidentally, he was featured prominently in this week's episode of boardwalk empire. Yeah. Um, But when you see those scenes of sexual tension, the walls are dripping with wallpaper paste, which looks exactly (laughs) like spooge. Sure.
0: Yeah. And it's, it's coming out of the ears of uh, one of the characters. And,
1: and uh, when, when John Goodman comes back from uh, having a troubling experience with a housewife, which when we look back at Charlie, you know, what we know about Charlie from the end of the film, it's fairly clear that he probably killed that woman. Mm-hmm. He's got an ear infection. He's got to stop up the pus. And then when he kills those two guys at the end, his ear literally ejaculates that same spooge looking pace that's coming out of the walls. Like, oh, I finally got a release here. Th- here's something else that is but how do, okay. you, do how do you have how do you how do you say this film is about the rise of national socialism <laughs> it's about homoerotic uh personality uh-huh. repression it's and about it's writer's about writer's block, block and yeah. it's about a critique for the hollywood establishment and oh oh by the way mm-hmm. you go and read the cohen brothers and they're like hey we don't intend any symbolism yeah, any was, overt symbolism necessarily we there. just kind of spitball and brainstorm and it's yeah. in a stew and we like, are they fucking the biggest liars? No, th- I think that's what they actually do. I think. Really? So, so
0: I I've, I was watching some Romero interviews, uh-huh. George Romero, um, about his early zombie movies, Night, Day, Dawn, uh, Night, Dawn, Day of the Living Dead. And he basically said the same thing. Like, a lot of the stuff that people are reading into this, we don't intend necessarily. I think it's a lot more clearly laid out in the coen brothers films like i think they do intend a lot of things but i'm not certain that they know how they all mesh together right you yeah. got all these concepts floating around in this movie but do they actually come together to make a point at the end i don't know that that's true i think they make a lot of points
1: yeah i mean i I see that a lot with authors where they're like oh we don't intend this but i know for a fact that there's some authors that do like you read red badge courage yeah. and when a guy's you know uh dies in a self-sacrificing manner with a wound in his side and the sun setting in the sky, like a uh-huh. wafer what, with you're, the crown of
0: thorns. You're
1: talking about <laughs> Jesus Christ, man. You're making a clear literary reference to, you know, Western, of yeah. uh, Judeo Christian mythos. Like you're, you, you can't tell me you don't intend that. Sure. And but maybe the, the deeper
0: intention is just the sacrifice of it all. Right? Like maybe they, they made a point of that, that guy looking like Jesus because he's going to make this heroic sacrifice later on.
1: Right. But that's exactly what you can't then say. Oh, well, you know, that was just, I just put a random string. No, I'm just telling a story and a yeah, random string yeah. of characters came and out popped the Christ figure. You just.
0: Sure. And you so, know, the but, thing they said about the love scene,
1: the, yeah, the sex scene right. shows
0: their intention. To right. A degree.
1: So they, yeah. And, and I feel like that it might not be that they're just lying. It could be that they just don't want to impose. And I kind of respect that. And a creator says, I don't, I don't want like like I, I think it's annoying when when people don't provide the lyrics for the albums <laughs> and their lyrics are kind of ambiguous. Especially Yeah, if they have a mush mouth. But they're yeah. like, you know, well, I don't want to impose my understanding on the listener. I want the listener. I want the experience to be organic. I, I kind of respect that. And I think maybe that's what the Coen brothers are doing, because no one can sit and tell me that they're not meaning for at least two or three of these layers to actually be something.
0: Sure. Why else do you mention, like, why else do you make the head of the Capitol Films or whatever be called up in the draft? Why do you have John Goodman say Heil Hitler before he blows somebody away? Right. That stuff is clearly in there. Right. It's just, does it all necessarily come together?
1: Yeah. So it's like, I guess this would be a good time about... You know, the fact that this is a a symbolism for the rise of national socialism in Germany and the liberal establishment's inability to deal with it, that you can see that, you know, Barton doesn't even want to engage like. uh, uh, Charlie is trying to tell him, like if he would sit and listen to these stories, he would have found that that this guy's a killer and could have maybe done something, could have gone to the police, could have arrived. But he's just completely willfully ignorant, doesn't want to hear it, cuts him off, ignores the problem. Uh, when, when situations get bad, and again, instead of confronting the situation, he buddies up with the the Charlie character, uh, and then by the end of the movie, when this is a clearly a failed plan, and his script is a failure, you see the studio exec get called up to the draft, he's in his military, he's, he's you know, they're now going to have to this, this war is intruding on the life, it does seem, and like you said, Charlie says Heil Hitler at the end, out of nowhere, yeah, uh, that seems like it's a pretty pointed critique at that it seems like it yeah um, yeah a lot, of, a lot of things there's also some Bible it, stuff that never pans off like the multiple talks about Nebuchadnezzar and looking at the Bible and, and where that all goes down in Daniel and yeah. then it kind of morphs into his the beginning of his failed script I don't
0: yeah it's weird like he he looks at this bible and he sees his text at the beginning of this bible right uh and then he writes what he considers his greatest work i i feel like he thinks he's writing a bible like equivalent in in those pages that he
1: turns in (laughs) Mm -hmm. but but i don't know if that's even supposed to be in there um what else we want to talk i've got um one of the things I appreciate about Anthony is that he actually sent in some pretty uh, good feedback as well for us to consider. But I feel like that we probably haven't talked about a lot of the stuff. The other thing I thought was interesting is that Barton Fink is railing in the beginning about Hollywood and how they're all a bunch of sellouts and no one makes important film and no one makes anything of quality. Mm. He's actually bitching about Hollywood in the height of its golden era, like 1941, which is this film takes place is the year to Citizen King comes out yeah yeah one of the greatest films of all time one of the most influential films one of the things that really changed the way film was being made and this is the environment barton finks is shitting all over yeah do we know if it's before or after this film takes place i have no idea i just know it came out in 1941 okay
0: because i was gonna say if it's before citizen kane comes out you know, there could have been stagnation before Citizen Kane, and that contributed to why it was so revolutionary hmm. because people were just shitting out B wrestling movies left and right. Yeah. And no. Citizen Kane comes along and is actually a good, a well made film. But that's that the thing. Like, it's
1: not like the theater has always been highbrow stuff either. No, I mean, you've got the burlesque not. shows, and you've got shit like Oklahoma and Showboat and dumbass stuff like that. Spider- <laughs> yeah, sure. The Lion King. I mean, uh, stuff that has artistic merit somewhere for something, but there's a lot of lowest common denominator stuff as well. And and like now it's like, even in the golden age of what we call television, uh, there's a lot of shit being produced. Oh yeah. Much more shit than great stuff. And I just feel Mm -hmm. like that that's another indication that maybe Barton Fink is not the genius. We think he is, especially at the end when the studio exec is saying, I've got 10 of you on contract. Like this guy, literally anyone that gets pressed from anywhere he makes an offer and tries to snare him in his net and brings him out here. It's a factory. Yeah. Maybe Barton wasn't that special. It's not like we've been searching for years for this Barton. F- I mean, you know what I'm saying? No, it all feels very
0: disingenuous from that guy from the start. When Barton Fink first walks in his office, he says, let me get this guy a hug. Let me like this guy is the guy he's sure. great. And you don't really buy it from him, right? He's, he's a blowhard. He's telling this guy what he wants him to hear. Hmm.
1: what what did is there anything what does charlie want out of life he says at the end that look i just try to help out people i wish someone to do the same for me hmm. would was he hoping that like barton would kill him like is he wanting for did he want to release out of his tortured existence was he wanting Bart? was he wanting to literally have a love affair with barton did he just wanted someone to listen I to him? I don't know. Like, I definitely don't
0: have all the answers on this film. <laughs> no one watched it twice, And no one does.
1: That's the thing. Like I, so I had to read opinions. six different deconstructions analysis and no one made the same point. They're all different.
0: Yeah. Uh, and then they take the same points and spin them differently. So it's like uh, it's very open to interpretation. I, th- I think Charlie Charlie can be seen as the devil himself. And if you look at him as the devil, the devil might very well be sad and lonely in hell. You know? <laughs> I could definitely see that being true. Um, Charlie could also just be a manifestation of Barton Fink's um, mania, I guess. Hmm. Uh, Like I said, with the serial killer idea, I don't know that Charlie and Barton are not the same person. That this is all uh, a part because because Barton is very worried when he says it's getting hot, Charlie's back, right? feels like things are steaming up inside of his own head. Mm -hmm. And if you look, here's something that's interesting that I'm, I don't know that I've seen commented on anywhere is if you look at Barton's desk, um, after he meets Charlie and he finds out about these ear infections, um, and he's got the cotton in his ears, uh, on his desk next to his typewriter, there's an ashtray matches on the top and there are used bloody, Uh, cotton balls in that ashtray
1: oh i didn't know there because i noticed he was using that to block his hearing to to drown out all the things going around yeah and
0: then he does that later and then he very specifically takes the script that he wrote Uh and puts these two cotton balls on top of it Uh uh-huh that takes me back to the serial killer idea where he is charlie he has done the killings uh and the cotton balls symbolize that that, that he is actually this person and that the heat building up in his head when Charlie comes back is a manifestation of that other side of his personality.
1: Hmm. I don't hey, know. Here's my contribution <laughs> to the Barton Fink analysis. that I've not read anywhere else. Okay, cool. Bring it the very last scene in the movie. When he's walking along the beach is almost a shot for shot remake of the last scene of planet and the apes where <laughs> Charleston Hesson <laughs> rides his horse along the beach and forbidden zone. And he sees a statue of Liberty in the surf. If you take that shot and you lay it over, I, it might even be the same goddamn beach. Just be. with a different, cause the cliff is different, but I'm not sure if the Cohen brothers just framed it differently, huh? but it, I feel like it's got to be intentional. Mm. Now then in that scene of planet apes, that's where the apes have been the antagonist, the whole movie. And they're the ones that you know that that Charleston Heston has to find a truth about what's going on, and he's got to you know figure out how to liberate the humans and do all this stuff. And that is the point in the movie, where he's brought down low, and he realizes the enemy is within—that we did this to ourselves. Yeah, damn it! You know, you we you you blew it up. You damn you you damn idiots. Um, why the illusion here in Barton Fink is are we supposed to? Take away from this that this is Barton now realizing that he has fucked himself over, that he's bought into his own bullshit. That I could buy that, yeah. That that he is the maniac. He is the maniac that blew his own life up. I, I could definitely buy that. I mean he is because everyone, everything that led him to here, I mean, I, I don't know that I buy that he's been an axe murderer the whole time. Sure. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm not saying I don't. I'm uh, just okay. saying that that's, yeah. <laughs> that's a new thought to me. Uh uh-huh. But if, if not, and then like if, if we take it to film at face value, which is probably dangerous and his <laughs> first foray into doing something fucking crazy was being involved in uh, the murder of uh, the William Faulkner types uh, mistress. Mm hmm every step that he took to get to that point is his own damn fault. He yeah. chose to sell out and go to Hollywood, even though he knew it was the wrong, the, the thing, the wrong thing to do. He's sitting there blathering about the everyman when he couldn't, uh, you know, he couldn't be bothered to listen to real every like Chet or the ele- elevator attendant or Charlie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, he's kind of rejecting every one of those and choosing to pursue his, his view of a, a superior author. Okay. Yeah but this is William Falcon time then he finds out he's a drunk and he recoils from that he's chasing after all these sources of inspiration when the uh, the real source and you know he did something he knew was wrong with the woman he then covered it up i just wonder if that was supposed to be like his you know you maniac moment
0: yeah no i i could definitely see it being that i think my my first reaction coming off this film was charlie was so far up his own ass he couldn't see what was going on around him. Sure. Uh, and I think that's reflected by the isolation of the hotel, like all these people apparently around him that Mm -hmm. he's ignoring and never running into with all the shoes in the hallway indicate that. Sure. Uh, and so like the idea that he may or may not be a great writer at the beginning, he goes out to Hollywood he, he believes that the only thing I can trust in Hollywood is myself. And so now he's stuck in his own head, the life of the mind Uh and he gets so far down that rabbit hole that, yeah, he can't, he can't see the forest for the trees at that point. And then it, it all becomes very clear how he feels in the USO show when he basically says that as a creative, he is more important than everyone, the common man, the people that he's looking to for inspiration. Right. Uh, So I I think it would be fitting if he finally understood that at the very end of the movie, like you're saying.
1: Okay, so what I think we should do now is get to Anthony's feedback. We might actually, this might be the rare podcast where the feedback is the middle (laughs) and not the end because I can see some of this stuff as jumping off points. Yeah. Uh, But I don't want to get too far along with this before we consider these points. Uh, Anthony says, I want to throw a couple ideas at you before we have a chance to do this podcast. And by the way, if you are contemplating commissioning a podcast we really like it when you do this when you mm. uh um, i mean we're more than happy to just go solo or duo or whatever <laughs> but if you actually have some thoughts on yourself that you want to hear us talk about um in a back and forth manner please you know don't hesitate to send us uh your pre-feedback your pre-back so obviously we can think of meadows as a metaphor for the supernatural force this is of course john goodman charlie meadows character Uh, But what about literally? He makes a comment to Barton about how he hears the couple in the neighboring room to Barton having sex. He also remarks about how he hears them through the pipes. Barton is pretty flabbergasted by this. We're then shown the inside of the pipes why Barton and Audrey are having sex. Are they suggesting that Meadows is traveling through the pipes here to witness this? I personally have trouble buying this on a literal level, but metaphorically I can see this as Meadows hovering over Barton now as the common man's inspiration. Earlier in the film, Barton was totally deaf to Meadows' life experiences. One thing I noticed, actually, I did notice, I, I watched the movie and then started reading some analysis. One person mentioned that at the end of the pipe sequence, which when we were watching, I'm like, what the fuck? What are we supposed to be taking away from this pipe sequence? Yeah. You go, they're having sex, they go to the bathroom, they go into the sink, they go down the drain and then down into the sewers. And when you get to the end, where kind of all these pipes are inter- intersection intersecting, if you Listen to it carefully. You can hear Charlie Goodman roaring in rage. Yeah, I feel like and he already said that he can hear this stuff through the pipes. So I feel like this is yet another betrayal uh, that 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 Barton has fostered on him. The first one was uh, Goodman is in there in a room. Maybe he's laughing. Maybe he's crying. I do think it's purposely ambiguous, just like when Barton hears the people making love. Mm -hmm. If you listen to that. It's not cut and dry exactly what's going on in there. The woman could be in ecstasy. She could be sobbing. The man could be grunting in pleasure. They could be having pain. There could be some weird shit going on. We don't know. (laughs) But the first time is when, you know, Barton again to every man, this guy, whatever he's doing in the next room, it's not offensively loud. It's a person just living. And I hear that's left purposely vague in the script as well. Huh? So he calls down to Steve Buscemi's character, Chet and complains about it. Chet Mm. calls the room and says, Hey, the next room said you're making noise pipe down. Charlie comes over and I thought originally he was going to beat the shit out of the guy. Sure. Yeah. Turns out it's his buddy buddy thing. But I do feel like that Charlie felt pissed that, you know, Barton had this like fake concern for him like he just wanted to go away but now that it looks like he's going to get beat up he's got this fake concern but I'm getting to the point where the second betrayal was when they were commiserating over the fact that none of them are successful with the ladies and uh, Charlie really seemed to warm up to Barton and now Barton's having sex next door that's when Charlie swung into action and I don't that's where I have a problem with saying that Charlie is a manifestation of Barton Fink's personality Because why go into the pipes? Why have the roaring? I mean, I guess that could all just be symbolism. It could. Yeah, that's the thing. Do you buy Barton, who was not drunk at the time, could have a woman brutally murdered beside him and not be awoken?
0: (laughs) No, that's why I wonder about the passing out thing, because we know he has passed out or he does pass out after that. Uh, Like, I am wondering, they don't show us what happened there. So it's it's left up to our imagination. And that's got to be on purpose. Right. Speaking
1: of on purpose, when he got, he he wakes up and he screams, then he goes to the bathroom and he kind of sinks to the floor and he makes these kind of wheezing like these death rattles like, <gasps> noises, which were very similar to the ones coming next door from the love make, the the couple making love. Huh. Okay. Why? What what's that supposed to mean? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I wish I knew, man. Did Charlie go next door and kill them because he heard them through the pipes? Uh To me, the pipe sequence is the most logical jumping off point to say Barton Fink had a psychotic break and the rest of the movie is a fever dream. Sure. Sure. If there's anywhere, you're going to call it that way. That's the cleanest. That's the cleanest break from reality because everything gets surreal. That's when he has his breakthrough and starts writing stuff. That's when he wakes up to the corpse. That's when the cops uh, come through. Mm -hmm. Um, So, so uh, Anthony continues along these lines. He says, uh, but then there's a scene where he's wrestling with them. There are a few different things you can take from that. Is he wrestling with the devil or his own inner demons? Is he wrestling with himself or his own creative struggles, which would make Meadows as a Tyler Durden type of character, making a Fight Club reference? Yeah, yeah. Is that even plausible here? Of course, the two cops do know about this madman month, so he has to be a real person, right? Unless no. the pipes are the dropping off point in the dream world in which the cops are just another part of the delusion.
0: Or you can take it even farther and say that the hotel itself is is the life of the mind is is a not necessary not not a dream but just a manifestation of what is going on in charlie's head as he's struggling with writer's block (laughs) like that's the thing i don't know that there are answers within this movie i think they're purposely vague when they
1: talk about it because it's a purposely vague movie sure Uh, Anthony has another point. Did you pick up the fact that the last line of Barton Fink's Broadway play is the exact same line from his new wrestling screenplay? Yeah, yeah. I didn't pick this up at the first time I saw it, but I think it's a very important point when reading into the film. What does it say about Barton artist? This tells me that he really is a one trick pony. It would certainly warrant the studio exec's fierce criticism of his work. It really changes what I thought of Barton Fink as a writer. After all the pomposity and judgments he wa- made of W. P. Mayhew's, which is the William Faulkner character, mm-hmm. and of his proclamations to Charlie and the World War II GIs about his life of the mind, what it ultimately does is cement his status as the supposedly most beloved object, the common man. Okay, yeah, I kind of agree with that. I don't feel like Barton is as good. Barton is. I feel like there's a lot of similarities to Barton and Ed Wood. Okay, just uh, just so far up their own ass that and 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 not like Ed Wood the real character. I'm talking to Ed Wood the character from the Tim Burton okay. movie where yeah, he yeah. actually, as what, played by Johnny Depp, as played by Johnny <laughs> Depp, which I think is a great film. Yeah. And the gap between what he thought he was doing and what he actually is doing, yeah, couldn't be bigger. And if you think of Barton Fink as this is. Ed Wood without us as the audience, knowing Ed Wood's real life reputation as one of the worst directors of all time, it kind of tracks through pretty clean. He's this guy, with this weird cast of characters. You know, he's completely insulated from any criticism. Anytime a criticism does land on him, he's got someone to prop him up and keep shoving him forward. I do think that maybe Barton Fink is not a once in a generation talent or anything like it.
0: Yeah, you could definitely be right about that. Um, there, most of this film is that struggle uh, about you know what makes him successful, what makes him great. Uh, it's definitely possible that he's not great. I think there are a lot of other similarities as well between the ending and the beginning of this film, where um, the beginning of this film in the play that he's uh, that he's written and is they're performing. At the end, you see a guy in a hat and a coat with a suitcase and kind of front and center mm-hmm. there looks just like how John Goodman looks at the end of this running down that hallway mm-hmm. when he steps off that elevator and they tell him to put down the, what What do they call it? Uh, I forget the actual term they use. It's the not, policy yeah, a policy bag or policy case.
1: case. <laughs> Weird term for that, Which but I, yeah. maybe that was a thing. That's what you call the kind of hinge. I don't know, I guess, but down I the guess. policy case, by the way, those two detective characters were fantastic. Everybody in this film, it, that's it, true. great, but I mean, that's like one of the one of the funny moments, the yeah, way yeah. that they're completing each other's sentences. Another thing yep. that I yep. couldn't get enough of and was also reminding me of Ed Wood mm-hmm. was when he was watching the dailies of the wrestler saying, yeah. the, I will destroy him. But <laughs> just like uh-huh. watching that 10 times over and over. That was that movies. If you've seen Ed Wood, there's this moment where. Bella Lugosi just goes off on this. Pulls the string. Pull, <laughs> as, and I just I don't know. I couldn't stop laughing. Oh, it's hilarious. It's hilarious. But uh, then multiple people get killed and John Goodman burst out as the devil from hell. And I'm like, the fuck. Yeah. So that's that's the difference in Ed Wood and that, I suppose. Um, He also says this brings him to his main point. Barton's relationship with the common man. The Mm. film makes no secret how Barton longs to create this theater for the common man while he remains absolutely tone deaf. And on top of that, extremely pretentious when confronting actual common men. After all the abuse he received from both Meadows and Lipnick, I always saw the last scene on the beach as Barton's final descent into his personal hell, leading to the realization that he really is the very common man he's been working so hard to exalt in his work. This happens when he meets the girl on the beach and watches her view the ocean just as he was watching her in the painting from his hotel room. No longer is there a separation between the idea of the common man and the experience. Barton is now doing what so many writers before have done; he's experiencing the subject matter he longs to portray in his work. Hmm. Uh, I think this works really well with my Planet of the Apes metaphor of him yeah. waking up that he is actually, you know, become that which he's trying to champion, but also despise. Um, what What do you make of the painting? God, that's one of the biggest questions I still have after watching this twice. And that's one of the ones that makes me really think a lot of the movie is a dream because that shit that happens in dreams. Sure, sure. So Uh, what do you make of it?
0: I don't know. It's all mixed up in the killing and the head, too. It's like at the end of the film, all he has is a (laughs) briefcase. I I think. Yeah. uh, This box, which presumably has a head in it, although he says he doesn't know what's in it. Uh, and that's it that's all he's got right that's everything
1: that Barton Fink is at that point Yeah, I, I'm convinced that box if anything is tied to the real world can tra- contains Aubrey's, uh, Audrey's head yeah it's got to like as soon as that box came in I'm like that's got a human head in it mm-hmm. this is a totally this is this, this, this movie's gone full seven on us this has got Gwyneth Paltrow's fucking skull in there uh-huh. it's gonna be Audrey I we never actually saw that, but I'm ninety nine point nine percent morally certain that that is contains (laughs) Audrey's head. Sure. Uh, I I think it just gets more interesting from there.
0: Uh, And uh, there's so many things that you can contextualize within my serial killer idea uh, with him passing out in the bathroom as John Goodman is carrying the body out. He doesn't remember how that body got out. He doesn't know what's in the, the thing. You know, if that's a break in his personality. Sure. John Goodman is another manifestation of Charlie himself. He, he, Barton Fink might not know what's in that, but Charlie, as a portion of Barton Fink's psyche, might. I don't know. I don't know, man. That, that's the big question. Cause he's looking at this painting
1: throughout the entire movie. What does he, so when he asks, says, you're beautiful, are you in pictures? And she says, don't be silly. And then she strikes the pose. That's. Yeah something is he getting the idea (laughs) for his next film like I don't know that it neatly I don't know if I agree with Anthony that it neatly lines up with this his realization he's because that's not an every man's life experience not ever I mean that's a that's a very movie experience to be walking on the beach Uh in your your suit And to plop down on the sand and then a beautiful woman comes out of the horizon and strikes up a conversation with this nebbish looking Jewy guy Mm -hmm. that's got like a kid in play Jufrö going on. (laughs) Yeah, I that that doesn't happen in real life. And then he says, like, almost it's is this the Coen brothers nod to us that this is a dream? Because if this if, Hmm. if she's not in the pictures, if this literally isn't a movie script. And we know it can't be real life for all the reasons I just said. Then, is that like, is, is that the spinning wedding ring? Is, is, is that the <laughs> is spinning that top, totem? rather? That's like, I mixed my totems up. Yeah. yeah. Oh, God. You're stuck in that. I just incepted myself. Yeah, <laughs> stuck
0: in limbo forever. Uh, <laughs> it definitely Someone kicked could me be. out of this thing. Definitely could be. I, I think it's also interesting to maybe look at it from her perspective. If you say Barton Fink is now. Realizing who the common man is. Like, mm. I don't know that in California the experience of that woman is on a very uncommon thing to just like she says, I'm not anyone special. I'm not in the pictures, don't be silly. I'm just a common person. And I'm walking down the beach and I'm looking out at the ocean. And mm. and looking at it from her perspective, she may be the common person that he has been trying to uh capture in his writing. Yeah. And maybe he's finally realizing that. I I don't know. I don't know. There's so much there to go
1: on, but not enough to make it conclusive. He's got two more points. He said, uh, Aaron, I want to thank you for knocking this to my head, but I never picked up on the shining references until you mentioned oh, it on yeah. the Fargo podcast. I thought the Fargo episode made a Barton Fink reference, but you said it was a shining reference. It turns out there's a lot of the shining in Barton Fink, mm-hmm. a writer struggling with writer's block in a spooky hotel, having to possibly deal with dominant supernatural forces. And speaking of film references, the last scene on the beach is very reminiscent of Fellini. He used the beach as a setting for the last scene to several of his classic films, usually as a cathartic moment for his protagonist, just like Barton. Is that last moment moment a catharsis for him? Uh, Potentially. Or is it like, I don't know, to me it felt more negative, like less a catharsis or more like a death knell or a, a, a I don't, I don't, yeah, I, I don't know exactly the weird. term. I'm. I need a German word to to express the, <laughs> yeah. the emotion I'm I'm feeling.
0: Definitely. Uh, it it could go either way. Like a realization can be a cathartic experience, or it's an epiphany for sure. He's having right, right, like a
1: drill, like a, a horrific. Like epiphany. oh my god,
0: I've just realized that I am a madman, or a
1: horifany. Oh my god, I've discovered the secret of the common man. Like sure. it could go either way. Sure, sure. Uh, but no, I definitely you know, those long quarters of hallway, I think when we were watching them, I'm like, are we going to, is this, is this where yeah. the wave of blood starts <laughs> crashing down? Uh-huh. Um He said, uh, fi- he said, finally, I just realized this upon recent viewing the film, but I think Barton scream after finding Audrey's dead body and beside him was a reference to the Godfather's horsehead scene. What do you think? I, yeah, it's, it's plausible. Sure. If you think
0: like the planet of the apes is an influence and like, you know, a lot of films have influenced their work, I'm sure.
1: And there was that kind of like, you know, this guy's waking up. He thinks one thing, you mm-hmm. know, uh, he, he makes one realization and, and the Godfather's. Oh, my bed is sticky. And he kind of moves the yeah. sheets around where Barton's the opposite. You know, it's, it's it does. It's not shot for shot, but it's kind of beat for beat. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the Cohen brothers are not above using those influences, obviously, as we talked about in the rest of the podcast. Sure. Uh, what else are we? I also think it's interesting because one of the things we were talking about as we were watching this, because you made a comment, I think, about how futile it is. Like, you know, why is he trying to make this highfalutin wrestler movie? And I said, you know, I would think that it would be impossible to make a highfalutin wrestler movie, except for Darren Aronofsky made one. Yeah. The with of. Mickey Rourke. That's fucking fantastic. Like that sure. is. If Barton Fink made a great <laughs> wrestling film, that's probably what it was. And then it got buried by the studio establishment and destroyed in a war, and then Darren found it yeah. years later and made it. Um I thought that was kind of interesting. And if you haven't seen the wrestler, if you think if you think the Central can see this movie is impossible, watch it. <laughs> uh what else? Anything else we want to talk about? No, I
0: definitely want to see this movie
1: again. Gotta
0: see Miller's Crossing, too. You gotta see that. Because I yeah. think
1: that might be now the last of the Coen Brothers movies I haven't seen, because I've seen you haven't Maybe, seen Raising Arizona, right? No, I've seen Raising Arizona though
0: okay. with Nick Cage. Yeah, uh, there's there's a movie before Raising Arizona that they made that I don't know the name of. Right, I'm looking uh, up their
1: um, yeah their filmography right now. Check those out because holy shit, it's got a main article in in. Uh, there's two movies they made: uh, Blood Simple and Crime Wave before Raising Arizona. Okay. Then they did Miller's Ca- uh, Crossing, Barton Fink, The Hudsucker Proxy. Have you, I've seen that. Have you seen that? Um, I want to say no. So one about the guy who invents the hula hoop, basically? Yeah, I don't think I've seen that. Alright, Fargo, Big Lebowski, The Naked Man. I have not seen that. Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Brother, uh, the Man Who Wasn't There, Intolerable Cruelty. I have not seen that either. <laughs> Lady Killer is a very bizarre movie. <laughs> Tom Hanks. Uh Paris J'ai Tame, I think is how it's pronounced. I've not seen that. Hmm, uh, there's a whole bunch of actually this these might be some short films that it uh, looks like it's it's uh because they're referred to as segments of it. Um No Country for Old Men, Burn After Reading, Serious Man. I have not seen that either. Uh True Grit, Inside hmm. Luton Davis, and then the stuff that hasn't actually come out yet. So yeah. yeah, I think I've only got like two more before I've uh Pokemoned it up and collected them all. I'll have to <laughs> Fix that for next uh, Fargo podcast starts up. Yeah, Miller's Crossing is the one I definitely want to see. Yeah, after seeing all these, yeah, we should have got a a twofer on this one. Um, but yeah, you know, it's, it's a definitely a direction to go. Well, Anthony, again, thank you very much for uh, commissioning this podcast. Another, I just I keep coming back to something I've said in the last few threads is that I I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but the bald move family has good taste. Yep. These are movies I if if I had gotten around to seeing them, it would have been a long time from now, and I'm glad that I had the reason to actually sit down and watch this movie and and actually think about it, too, because I think if I had seen this movie just as a civilian, I probably would have started playing with my cell phone in the second half of the movie where it started to kind of take it in a direction which i wasn't ready for it to go and i certainly wouldn't (laughs) have thought as much about it and done as much research and seen all the depths to it so yeah thank you for that if you'd like to find out how you can commission your own custom podcast the only place to do it right now is on sublable.com slash bald move uh go there check out the reward level it's it's uh it's the brass ring of reward levels um But uh, I hope you've enjoyed this. I hope we did uh, your favorite movie. One of your favorite movies, Justice, Anthony. uh, Basich. Basich. And uh, until next time, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.